0: hello and welcome to impressions of america i'm simon and with me as always are toby and bon. hi guys hi guys hey simon today we're talking about books that have inspired us to study history amongst other things and i'm delighted to say that we have a guest here to, to join in that conversation Ian Gordon has taught history and cultural studies in Singapore for the last 24 years, and his books include Comic Strips and Culture, Consumer Culture, 1998, and Superman, The Persistence of an American Icon, 2017. He is a Swan Foundation Fellow at the Library of Congress and a Smithsonian Institu- Institution Fellow. Uh, he is a high school dropout who worked as a cleaner, debt collector, meat worker, and library technician before going to the university. And his undergraduate days, he was known to have a beer or two with the current prime minister of Australia, Anthony uh, Albanese. Um, Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that uh, interesting bio. That was, uh, that was definitely probably, probably the most fun one we've had so far. So thank you for that. Uh, Vaughn, do you want to introduce the topic of today's show a little bit further to our audience and maybe connect as to, to why Ian's with us?
1: Sure um so this episode is uh very much an indulgence for me so sorry about that but um ian's ian's book that simon just mentioned um comic strips and consumer culture is a really important book to me and really kind of set me on the path that i am on now to the point that i'm writing about christmas films for a phd um It was the first cultural history that I had ever read. And it really blew my mind that you can study what you want to study and anything that we interact with, anything in our everyday lives has some sort of historical basis that you can look for it in the past in some way, some whether it's kind of theoretical and like mental escapism or whether it's the literal comic books that you are reading any given day, like there, they have a history and that history impacts people in so many interesting and barely read about, barely studied ways. Um, so, so Ian's book really kind of changed my whole perspective on what history can be and especially professional history and what, what we're allowed to study. Um, I actually, the same day I read Ian's book, I changed my undergrad dissertation to um, de- to concerning uh, comic books and children's cartoons in the first half of the 20th century, we'll say. Um, and before that, I was doing some boring diplomatic something that I don't even remember what it was because I am not a diplomatic historian as our listeners would know um so that's that's why we are here today that's why ian is here today because we're going to talk about the books and the histories and the historians that have kind of inspired us to jump on this path of learning about history and the things that we are interested in and all of us on this podcast we we don't necessarily go down traditional historical routes especially not in what we talk about on the podcast like we we had an episode on the history of the WWE and um you two are obsessed with Nixon they're not normal things that we talk about on the podcast so that's what we're going to do today um I could talk for hours about my kind of research icons and, and historical icons, but I would like to know from Ian, what what is your kind of take on this topic of the inspirations that have led us to study what we want to study?
2: I, I think they're often fairly varied. Um, yeah. I, I sometimes struggle when people ask me, you know, what's the book that influenced you? And I'd probably hum and ha. Uh, unless I thought about it a little bit, and you know, sometimes um, you know, I, I would say it's not books per se, but it's encounters with America uh, that influenced me to become an American historian. So I, you know, I often say, you know, I grew up reading comics. And I, I learned to read, as far as I know, from you know, talking with my mother at various points by reading comics, and I was lucky that you know. Given how old I am, that it was encouraged um, both by my parents and by the people at school. Uh, you know, let kids read, let let them read. If they're reading, you know, that's great. Um, which, so my mother always encouraged that. So you know, I got my dad died when I was seven. So if I'm talking about my mother, that's why. Uh, so that that general kind of background and having an interest in reading and reading widely, but comics in particular, American comics, and the sort of the relevation that they were. Um, I didn't see a lot of superhero comics, original ones um, until somewhat later. Um, uh, In my reading experience, when I say somewhat later until I was about 11 or 12, I started to see DC and Marvel comics, but Archie comics and Harvey comics uh, had the sort of ads in them. for various, you know, sell seeds or deliver great newspapers or sell Christmas cards and get great gifts or these sort of things. And it was just something that was very different uh, than Australian culture. And of course, on television, various shows, American shows uh, in Australia. So these are all kind of created an interest in America. Trying to understand history, um, some of my inspiration for that uh, came from um, after my father died, uh, we, my, on my mother's side, my grandmother was English. And my mother had been to England as a little girl um, for, for various reasons. And I, I guess she found something in that after my father died. A few years after that, we went to England. And I'm old enough that we went by boat, not by, or by ship, sorry. And so this was, a, this was an eye-opener as a kid. Um, you know, I got to see various aspects um, of, of things that most people wouldn't, just wouldn't encounter, especially when they're young, like the pyramids, um, the, the Acropolis. And so I, I, I think I started to get a bit of an interest in, in history out of that. And probably as a kid, it was a means of showing off. You know, Oh, yeah, I've seen the pyramid. <laughs> um, <laughs> But somewhere, and, you know, and then I lived in London for years, so, you know, I was in the Tower of London, and I think some pedophile took me up the top of the White Tower, because he said he couldn't take my sister, and yeah, so things you think about when you're older, is like, oh yeah, I remember on the way back down, some guard sort of watched out and obviously was making, now that I think about it, making an intervention. But nonetheless, you know, you're sitting there, you're looking at history. And in Australia, when I was young, the kind of history that was all around us um, just seemed very new. Of course, we were living in the oldest existing culture in the world, but that wasn't acknowledged. at that stage in, in Australia's history. So those, those kind of things, I think, are, are things that shape me. And um, I, I think because um, I, I was a teenager around the time in the Vietnam War, um, a young teenager, um, and it was basically over, um, before I came of age, but at one point as a teenager, it was like, yeah, I'm going to be shipped off to a war potentially. Why is America in this war? And I think I started to get a greater interest in American politics, diplomatic mm-hmm. history, and, and all of these things are out of that. And I, I started to read a little bit, of um, in, in those areas and have a fascination, um, so, at a certain point, you know I dropped out of school um, I was working amongst the many jobs I was working in a meat packing plant or an abattoir or whatever you want to call it and I was reading um, the Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which I'd borrowed from the library and went back with which is about meat packing plants in Chicago at the turn of the century and socialist organizers in them and Um, It went back to the library with genuine blood stains on it from the the area where I was reading, which I I happened to work sometimes at a place where I could read a book while I was watching blood and bone being ground up. And my nickname at the cafeteria was the professor because on every lunchtime I was reading rather than playing cards until I figured out if I play cards, I get a better assignment from the foreman, especially if I lose. So... I think that experience too of of just you know um, starting to relate to America through through these variety of things uh, was important. And I can't think of any book early in the piece that that made me particularly want to be a historian. I think it's more experiences. I did as a kid at school do a year of American history, but our teacher was often away. Um, I think he had a court case. God knows what that was about. And so we were left to read the textbook by Henry Still Cumminger and Alan Nevins, uh, pretty much by ourselves. And I, I'm pretty sure I read all of that. Um, and at various stages later before I went to university, I went back to that. So somehow in there, there's, you know, just comics, television, pop music, politics, an interest in America grew. Excuse me, my cat is expressing her dissatisfaction in the background. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I
1: so, yeah. yeah, I I really I definitely agree that. Um, while well, while you were giving that answer, I'm trying to think like, when did I decide I wanted to be a historian, and I don't know when that happened um or why that happened but I do definitely agree that it is experiences based I mean every every decision we make is but um I think for for me at least the kind of journey of figuring out what kind of historian I wanted to be has been quite kind of I flip a coin (laughs) And that's where I go with it um there's there's another scholar that I do want to highlight who is um Adrian Mayer who has a not dissimilar research background to you Ian um Adrian was not is is not a kind of like traditional, like high school, undergrad, master's, PhD, research scholar. Um, She has worked in all sorts of different industries and is now primarily just a researcher because she doesn't like teaching and she doesn't like a lot of the aspects of academia, but she just loves, she's so curious about kind of everything. Um, And she's another one who really set me on a trajectory in undergrad when I encountered her work and she's a paleo cryptozoologist. Yes. (laughs) And when I was a classicist, I was just enamored with paleo cryptozoology and it was something that I really wanted to study. What she does is within that field that she kind of coined as well is look at um, different archeological findings around the world that with modern science, we can date back to certain times of whatever, carbon dating, all of that sciency stuff that I don't really get. Um, And then look at the mythologies from ancient cultures in those areas and see how they interpreted these fossils when they most likely would have encountered them. And the the first article of Paleo-Cryptozoology for Adrian Mayer is about um, an area in Asia Minor where they found a lion skeleton and an eagle skeleton very close to each other. And she wrote this, this paper talking about how the culture that would have encountered it is probably talking or probably invented the mythology of the Griffin when they found these fossils. And that blew my mind that someone could piece together this mythology and the the bones in the dirt and how people at the time would have created this massive just imaginary creature that we still talk about today because they were trying to explain something that they they were experiencing in their modern day and they didn't know what it was so they had to come up with something for it and it's this kind of mental escapism that's just fascinating to me. Um, Do you think with popular culture, mental escapism comes into it for you?
2: I think that part of my interest in that uh, stems from trying to understand uh, by reading the, the item itself rather than trying to study, you know, do sociological types of studies hmm. or psychological studies on people and ask them for responses. Um, and try, I try to think through how people encounter um, items of popular culture uh, yeah. and other cultures. And, and the starting point is generally, well, for, for me, how did I encounter uh, America and, and what was America's influence on Australia, which was Uh, fairly large at at certain points and then retreats and it's uh, been a uh, a relationship and an influence uh, that waxes and wanes over the years Um, and of course that's a terrible starting point in a way to bring one's own experience into things uh, if unless you're going to expand out of that um, which is always the important point so one's own interest in in you know, well, what do I make of this? Why was I interested in this as a kid, for instance? Or what is mm-hmm. my ongoing uh, interest in, in these subjects? Um, and why am I fascinated, for instance, by um, the the turn of, of the guilt, from the Gilded Age to um, to really the Great Depression is a, is an area, is an era in which you know I think so much changed in, in American culture, and, and some of that is. Um, because that's the area that I ended up doing my PhD on. I spent a lot of, much of my PhD on, I spent a lot of time looking at a lot of media in that area. And um, just encountering those things uh, forces you to kind of think a little bit about what you're looking at. It goes, for me, it goes back to, um, (laughs) I mean, several things when I eventually did go to university, the first university lecture I attended was in late modern European history because there was no American history to second year. It was a year long system uh, at the stage with, with three terms. And the, the, I still remember a guy named Richard Bosworth, who was a historian of, of Italy, stood up and he read the death scene from uh, of the regicide of Henry IV of France, or Henry V of France, can't remember, it doesn't matter, uh, from Foucault's Discipline and Punish, as it turned out, and it's about him being drawn and quartered. So he read that, and then he read something about Lapetomane. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lapetomane, but Lapetomane was a cabaret act in pre-World One, World War I France, and Lapetomane had an elastic anus. He could draw in air and expel it. In a controlled fashion, his whole act was farting uh, in certain ways. This is my first university lecture, lecture, and it's about it's about wow violence uh, enacted on the human body and somebody whose act is farting. You know the high (laughs) points of European culture, and I I guess I fell in love with that. That this is this is history. It's it's kind of you know it's it's such a range. And, and then when I did get to do American history, I wrote a book, had to write a book review, a standard exercise. And for mm. some reason, I put, picked a book by George M. Fred, George Fredrickson, N. Fredrickson, called The Inner Civil War, which was on the impact of the Civil War on American intellectuals. And as a throwaway line in my review, which wasn't that great, um, was why aren't there any artists in this in this book you know they're mentioned in one sentence and my tutor who um became a very prominent historian of america from australia a man named shane white who works on who worked on still alive who works on african-american history written more books than you know most people would hope to do so um, he wrote, Oh, this is very interesting. I would have liked to have seen more on this. And I went on and did the next year in another course a so very long 8,000 word essay on the impact of the Civil War on American artists and, and art after the Civil War. And that's how I became, I moved from an interest in, primarily in diplomatic history, um, which was about. America's relations with Australia and America's relations with with the world, but with particular focus on Australia, into being a cultural historian of America is, you know, somewhat of a throwaway line from me and somewhat of a throwaway line from somebody grading a book review. But it it took me into dealing with visual material. And I'd long been a person who read a lot of comics, watched a lot of TV, watched a lot of movies. And so it took me into into an area where I I kind of had a pre, um, I guess, pre-existing relationship with. I didn't need to do a lot of, as I, as I tell my students now. I never did my homework at school because I was doing advanced research, reading comic books, and watching movies. And they all laugh, and then I say, "But it's true. That's what I make my living doing. You know, I've had a very <laughs> nice career. Thanks very much, out of that stuff." Um, so yeah, I was doing advanced research. I just thought I was enjoying myself. Everybody else thought I was wasting time, but there you go. So I don't know if that answers your question or if that's just an anecdote it, again and a joke I like.
1: It does. It does a bit, but it also kind of mirrors how I feel about my research. I... I don't know if you had this, but when I realized that I could study anything I wanted and that they would let me do a PhD in Christmas films, I it blew my mind and I still can't really believe it. I'm in my fourth year and I'm like, are you sure I'm allowed to do this? And now I can see my thesis much more clearly and I know what my argument is. And I, I'm like, okay, this does have a lot of kind of grounding in the anti-communist turn and everything. Like, There's no argument to be made here, but I still sometimes feel like I'm cheating the system by I get to watch movies for work. What is that?
2: Yeah, I I think, I mean, I've taught a course for years, co-taught a course for years called Film and History, which was really critical inquiry in in film. So, you know, show things like Rashomon and get students to think about facts or show a film like When We Were Kings about Muhammad Ali, The Rumble in the Jungle, alongside the biopic Ali and ask students to think which is the more truthful, which which one or which one lets you have a better understanding of Ali and just Mm. kind of disabuse them of the notion that documentaries are truthful. Um, So those those sort of things, I I think, are are really important um, that how one comes comes to history I, or, or comes to a subject that you're interested in, in and how you start to realize what it is you can and can't do and, yeah. and find a voice. And I remember studying uh, a course on, um, it was very radical at the time, it was called recovering the past question mark. And it was a history, fourth year seminar, advanced seminar And it was taught by a historian of Thailand, um, an American named Craig Reynolds. But we were reading Foucault. We were reading, um, I don't think we read Derrida, but we read, you know, and Semiotics. And I'm trying to remember um, sort of other theorists. We read, we might've read some Hayden White. um, um, Yeah. and a whole host of postmodernist, post the, In history, there was a turn to this, it's called the literary turn um, mm-hmm. that was made in, I guess, the mid 80s. And before that, there'd been a turn to uh, quantification. Um, so the literary turn things were stuff I was reading. I remember reading it and thinking, you know, these guys are just making this stuff up. <laughs> it's not, you know, because historians were very <laughs> empirical and we, we've got to go and find the thing, the evidence. And reading theorists, you realize that, you know, that, that they're just exploring. And, and yeah. I, I saw a piece a couple of, couple of weeks ago on Twitter, on, on Twitter, Marcus Rediker, a, a well-known historian of yeah. America, um, said that he review, reviewed uh, Michel Foucault's History of sexuality, and he wrote to Foucault about some of the contradictions or whatever. And Foucault replied, Oh, yeah, but you know, I started from the point it was worth just thinking about these things and not worrying too much about the contradictions. And I, and I guess sometime in my fourth year as an undergraduate, I, I guess I got on to the sometimes, you know, it's about not worrying too much. And if you start. By worrying how accurate you're going to be, instead of then applying yourself and trying to understand it, um, it you're limiting yourself at the start. And and yeah. one other moment when I started my doctoral research after my qualifying exams in the American system, I'd been very fortunate. I'd gotten the Swan Foundation, which you know they gave me all the money in advance, which is more money I'd seen at one time uh, in my life before that. And my hands shook, but I was in the Library of Congress. I'd been down there starting my research for about two or three months. And one afternoon I was reading a I was reading a book, or it was early afternoon, and I was tired and I was bored. And I remember going, you know what? The answer is not in this book. I've read enough now. The answer is in my head. I need to go home, because that's where I wrote, and and start. Thinking about how to write this first chapter. And it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I put the book down, left the Library of Congress, went home. And I don't think I did anything that day. But I, it was that <laughs> liberating moment of recognizing that if the answer was in a book, you wouldn't be working on the subject. And that yeah. you can, you know, you have, it, not only can you say something here, that is actually what you're trying to do when you're doing a PhD, it's to find your voice talk about a subject in the way you want to talk about it. And the job is to make it interesting to other people so that it explains something to them about the world and the way it it was shaped in a particular way. Now, that's easy to say, Um, almost 30, yeah, it is over 30 years since that moment occurred to me. Um, It it might've been more that I was bored and feeling a bit tired that afternoon that I took that decision. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I really love that framing though. And that's going to stick with me, I think, because I'm, I struggle sometimes with my PhD and thinking like, is this even worth it? Like, what am I doing? But you're, you're right. And that's something that I tell my students is that if you, if you were going to get a hundred in this class, or if you were going to like, just blow every other student away or you wouldn't be a student in university, you'd be signing your book contracts at 18. So it's about this journey that that you are on to figure out where you are and what you what areas you need to improve on. And that's why we go to school. And sometimes I forget that I am still a student. And there are things that I need to learn. But there are also some things that I need to express. And that's why I'm doing this, this course and this degree.
2: Yeah, and and again, you know, maybe the great historians, and I I don't count myself as a, you know, I'm a competent, capable, accomplished historian, but I'm not a, I wouldn't see myself as one of the greats. Um, Maybe the great historians don't have this problem, but I kind of doubt that too. Um, It's again and again, every new project involves that process. And mm. trying to use the methodology you used on a previous uh, project in, into a new project often leads to enormous problems um, because it's, it's not applicable. It just won't work for you. Um, that something that you tried once uh, isn't always going to work. Um, and recognizing that moment, recognizing when you're at a dead end with something you're trying to do is, is always very hard. But that's what the writing of history is. It's it's again and again and again facing problems you have no idea what you're doing and trying trying to think your way through, which often involves writing and often involves tossing away um, a lot of your writing. One of of my undergraduate teachers, a historian named Peter Cochran, um, I remember him telling me the great historians throw away about a third of what they write. And you know, it's like you tell that to an undergraduate, they're like, but you know, that's all the stuff I knocked out last night to get the essay done on time. <laughs> but that's what it takes. And that's, you know, it's not easy. It's never easy to write. And then it's never easy to throw it away and mm-hmm. and start over again because it's like, well, why did I waste my time writing that? But that's the process, that's how we understand, that's what historians do. And, and when I say I doubt that great historian, and when I say I think maybe great historians have that problem too, I was very fortunate. I got to study with Chris Philash He wasn't my main, he wasn't my advisor, He's on my committee, um, who's been dead 28 years now. Um, but, um, is it 28? Yes. Um, And, you know, he was an eminently prominent, best-selling, the culture of narcissism, um, you know, still remembered today. And he would come to class sometimes and he would say, I I struggled to write this. And he'd read you a paragraph he'd written that explaining something that we were discussing in the class that day. Um, And for some reason, he had spent time writing a paragraph for us to help us understand it. And he would say that, you know, it's inadequate, I, you know, it's not blah, 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 blah. So again and again, um, you know, that lesson is yeah, don't worry too much when you're struggling to figure out what it is that, you, that you, you're understanding the subject is or how you understand it, because that's, that's a process. And your understanding of it is, is something that's, that's important and unique because you're bringing something to it by that process of trying to think it through. That sounds all very abstract. Um, but, um,
1: it's no, taking like it. it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Simon and Toby, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really hogging our guest here. Do you guys want to jump in on um, the histories that have kind of inspired you or any books or experiences or historians specifically that really kind of captured your attention and made you think like there's more to this history thing than they said in school
0: yeah so probably for myself I mean I am the furthest away on this podcast from being a historian um, I would
1: disagree (laughs) I would disagree you're a public historian you host a multiple history podcasts Simon so
0: that money will be transferred into your account by then (laughs) Uh, so uh, as someone who's always enjoyed history and who's taken you know interest in it and has studied parts of it um, specifically around media history at university um, when I was thinking about this question I was thinking right what kind of has actually stuck out to me. So I, I was thinking about, you know, when I was young, it was, you know, children's books or around, you know, things like the space race or Roman history or, or things like that. And you kind of, you, you, when you're a little bit older, you understand that was probably as much about interest in narrative as it is about specific interest in particular topics. And as someone who loves film and TV a lot and who from a young age was was consuming a lot of media, um, I, I think looking back at now, a, a lot of what I've taken as far as history is dealing with narratives of story and narratives of, of how things progress. Um, at university, it was mainly sort of film study books. Um, I was reading and, and sort of concepts around, around that. But after university, probably the thing that's kind of stood out the most for me is is that i had taken a lot of audio books, or as i I'm used to, and um, a lot of that deals with either 20th century history or the sort of cultural 20th century history. So things like American Prometheus, which is about Oppenheimer, or Marvel Comics by Sean Howe, um, Console Wars by Blake G. Harris, which is about the, the video games industry, and biographies like um Shoe Dog by, by Phil Knight, who is the co-founder of Nike. And and so a lot of that is to do with either pockets of very specific history or um, particular views on on how how history has moved forward in the 20th century. But the one that I, that's probably had the most impact on me and was probably an um, inspiration in part for doing this podcast was uh, a book called Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century by John Higgs, who is an English writer and cultural historian. Uh, the, the book attempts to make sense to the 20th century and the move away from Newtonian world of the 19th century. So it looks at a variety of different areas of study, including the physics of Albert Einstein, cubism of Pablo Picasso and Dadism. Daddyism of um, Marshall Duchamp, um, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, James Joyce's Ulysses, postmodernism, and a key theme of the book is the idea of um, objects or events appearing to be different depending on the perspective of the observer, in contrast to the the more stable view of art and science in in the previous century. Uh, The book came out in 2015, long after I'd left university, I I finished university in 2012, and um, it just pushed me into wanting to study more about the 20th century and and think differently about different topics and, and and think about um things that I might know a little bit about, but learn more about them and also think about them in, in a different way, such as Picasso's paintings, which until that book I hadn't, hadn't really thought about in in that that idea that it wasn't so much that the the paintings are about um sort of um, obliterated people. It's about diff- different different people's perspective, looking at the, uh, one object. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I would say probably Stranger Than We Can Imagine by John Higgs is probably the, the book that inspired me the most and is one I I can keep returning to and I, I find fascinating in its framing and its, its journey from uh, a sort of Newtonian world at the, the end of the the, the 19th century and uh, moves up to today's world with, with Trump and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. So that, that that's probably the, the book that's had the biggest impact on me, I would say, from a history side of things.
3: Um, for me, I don't I don't know if there's a single book that's had uh, uh, an uh overarching uh effect on me and uh in terms of uh of, of history. I would say that my formative experience is like you know, I, I have dyslexia, so I had um a reading age that was uh, I think lower than, than students um, often in the classes I was in. So I was, I was, you know, I was usually in like, like, you know, like higher sets in school, like getting actually good get grades throughout school, but struggling with um, like the tech, the technical stuff around reading, but always lo- loving stories. So I had to, I had to make a, uh, an attempt to try to, um, read more books in order to improve my my reading. And uh, at first, it was like spy stories, like Alex Rider. But then I got into um, like like the the Guardian and Telegraph lists of like the best books. And I think it was like uh, Chevantes' Don Quixote that, that I think really got me into like like historical periods. Obviously, Don Quixote's Fiction, but like, it, it, and I think it, it allows for a kind of escapism from, you know, like living in 2010 London into like worlds and times and places that are so divorced from my own reality. And, and history became for me a kind of escape, I would say. But then you know, I I was originally on an economics degree. I switched to history. Um, like probably looking to to like study the periods around the novelist that i liked so um i was really into hemingway at, at that time so i wanted to study like you know like the, the period after the first world war and like uh america and like france and stuff but but again i i kind of found that i was better as i had been in school at this more like quantitative and conceptual types of history, which pushed me uh, towards more economic history, uh, just where, where I got most of my uh, best grades and, you know, like allow me to get, you know, the first the end of my my course. But then, but, it, but I was always like a little bit like, I don't know, I didn't really enjoy that stuff that much. And I just, then I discovered Rick Perlstein's book um, on Nixon, and it was like being, you know, sixteen or fifteen again with like, with like Cervantes and the, the stories. It was like it was a narrative, like, and it was an exciting narrative. It always reminded me. People call it like Gonzo, Gonzo history reminded me of uh, you know reading Hunter S. Thompson's book or like Kerouac or something, and it, and the period of the 1950s and 1960s wasn't like just like about ideas it was it was like a, it was a story it was deeply exciting now uh, Nixon as a character really uh, captured me Lynn Johnson Kennedy all these characters which is obviously the reason why I started this 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 podcast you know because my academic work is more ideas based and I, and I think I do have like a uh, you know a lot of like um, and I think in terms of historians, uh, Louis, Louis Menand's um, Metaphysical Club was a really interesting book uh, while I was doing you know, my master's degree on the progressives and like economic policies that they put together. That was a really interesting book uh, for me in terms of like the mind of America. Yeah, I, I did a lot of reading on like journalists at the time who were reflecting on history, um, Herbert Corley and Walter Lippmann, and you know, there's like the whole conception of America is very, very interesting for me academically. But my like light reading and what, what mo- mostly consumed my uh, historical diet was like like Robert Caro and and um, Rick Perlstein and, and people like that who were who were who were doing like 50s and 60s stuff, but doing it in like exciting um, uh, narrative form and I think that became the basis of what I wanted to do with the with the podcast. So I, I do think there's like different tracks for me. Like I'm I'm someone who did my undergraduate dissertation on on William Petty, who was a political economist from the like uh from the 17th and 16th and 17th century. But and then like did some American stuff kind of around the same area political economy, but I probably enjoy more this kind of like narrative uh, history and which is the why, which has really influenced the public history that I think we we do here on, on impressions.
2: That's fascinating that, the, that you summed it up with that interest in narrative history. Cause I, I think that's, you know, one of the things that too often in, in the last 20 years as historians have, you know, shifted the focus of history from kind of the great man, great events kind of school, trying to look at, at um, some of the more minuter and also some of, the, some of the broader aspects of history that it's, you know, not simply the great man and whatever, um, that some of the narrative of history, unfortunately, has slipped away. And it's it's not that narrative history of, of great men is, is what I want to see, although I, I want to see narrative history of characters and of, of, of everyday people and um, ways of writing that. And that's, of course, a bit more difficult because it's probably, it's easier to tell any story with a single character and then that, that creates a problem. So, you know, I love these kind of broad narratives. So something, I mean, probably the most influential book for any sort of social and cultural historian of a certain age uh, was E.P. Thompson's Making of the English Working Class that looked at process um, and and looked at the way that as an English working class was formed, um, it was formed by those very people who were artisans um, struggling against being displaced as artisans. And this kind of social history um, often called from the bottom up, which I don't particularly like that term, but those things captured my attention, not necessarily simply because of the the political nature of a lot of this history, but for the ways in which it, it could potentially tell narratives um, away from you know the centered political great great men sort of thing, and and some of the women who who did these sort of histories. I, I mean, I, I think of um Elizabeth Cohen who did the Making of the New Deal in Chicago, which is a fantastic book, and then later her uh, A Consumer Republic about the ways in which people shape their lives. Um, I'm not sure that Paula Fass's *The Damned* and *When Is It? What Is It? The Damned and the Beautiful* about 1920s America quite fits um, into that area, but that's another book. When I think about that, that looks at, about how culture is being reshaped and, and is somewhat trying to tell narratives. Um, the one that really springs to mind is uh, Bonnie Smith, a, a historian of uh, of France. And her book, *The Ladies*, *The Ladies of the Leisure Class*, which is uh, looking at women whose uh, husbands own manufactories, or, or uh, fact, I mean, before factories became factories as we think of them, um, and the ways in which um, their social role was, was a form of, I guess, a form of work. Look, it's thirty years since I read the book, so I might be misrepresenting it. But it was just a fascinating narrative of the way these women lived in, in, in this kind of culture. Uh, and it let you see something that if you'd written about the factories, you wouldn't see. And, and another book uh, is Leonora Davidoff and, and Catherine Hall's Family Fortune about Birmingham and the rise of Cadbury. And they're just, they're just great histories because they're, they're using that narrative form um, you know, the rise of Canbury um, to discuss all sorts of you know of uh, things um, religion, social relations uh, in Birmingham. So yeah, I, I just I'd like to see more narrative history, but with that sort of 30, 30, 30 years, I wish the 50 years kind of uh, sort of work of social history to uh, recover, uh, more uh, lives, uh, more historical lives across, you know, cl- uh, class and gender um, brought into that uh, in convincing ways. Um,
3: I, I think for me there's, like, there's a, there's a preference question because, like, I, I find uh, what Vaughan does, um, although, you know, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Christmas films, but I find, like, <laughs> film history and, like, what, what Vaughan does very interesting... Um, because it, it allows for a kind of like level of like cultural criticism, and then the content itself is, is interesting. Like the, the book you mentioned about the, the, the 1920s and social history like 1920s, I would I, find interesting, but it's like social histories of, of work and what people do and leisure. I don't tend to find that, that interesting, um, but social histories and cultural histories that attach to ideas. I do. So, yeah, I think, uh, um, yeah, I haven't yet been able to dive into that, that stuff, uh, outside of, of obviously being, an acad- you know, my academic work, to the extent that I did it, you know, in a casual way, because I do find it a little bit dry. Have you
2: read fire in the Valley?
3: No, no, I haven't. It's about the making of,
2: of the personal computer, um, industry, I guess. Um, in, um, you know, between Berkeley and Stanford. Um, it's, a, it's a really, um, I think it's a wonderful book about um, the excitement and the way that, you know, this PC industry um, comes out of, you know, San Francisco radicalism in, in a lot of ways and um, the struggles over intellectual property. Um, it's, it's a fascinating read. Um, it's by Michael Swain with an E and Paul, uh, Free Burger. Um, it came out in, wow, 1984. Um, and apparently it was the basis for Pirates of the Silicon Valley that I don't know, bad movie or so, so, but yeah, it's, yeah, it was a pretty good book about the social conditions that produced Apple and, and, and Microsoft.
0: That does sound fascinating. I, I was just thinking as as you guys were talking that from my own perspective growing up in, in Scotland, um, how much interest I had in other parts of history and how much interest I had in like American media and, and things like that and being able to talk about um, that in a historical perspective and I compare that to how little interest I had in things like Scottish history and how that if I had to talk about you know hiring highland clearances um, i'd probably be doing a geography podcast rather than hot history podcast right now um so it, it i guess it a lot of this stuff is is, is personal preference but uh, the, for for things like sort of day-to-day life of people in mills in the 18th century i just it just completely different language to me than say talking about you know post-war america or or, or, or something like that which which i do have more of an interest um Von, is there anything in this regard that we've kind of not asked you that you've not already kind of covered?
1: Um, That is a broad question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I think I I really love a good narrative history as well. I really love uh, experimental narrative histories to take this in a bit of a different direction. So there's one... um, Experimental narrative history that I'm thinking of specifically that I really love, by Saydia Hartman, called Wayward Lives: Beautiful Experiments, uh, Intimate Histories of Riotous Black Girls, Troublesome Women, and Queer Radicals, and it's it's about Philadelphia, my home city, um, and the reading from the, the excerpt of it, um, The Revolution of Black Intimate Life that unfolded unfolded in Philadelphia and New York at the beginning of the 20th century. And it's an absolutely fascinating book because what Hartman does is look at all of these histories and um, the object culture and the photos that we have from that period. And she doesn't write just a narrative nonfiction story about it. She put so much life into writing this history from a first person perspective of what these people in these pictures may have experienced and thought and felt at the time. And the the introduction to it explains this method of what she is doing. And that book really changed a lot for me of what we can do with history. Um, and to force us to remember that the people that we write about and read about and study were people and had lives beyond the kind of key points that we know of their lives and that we study. And they're, they're more than just showing up at a battle somewhere. They're, they have full intricate human lives like we do now. And I think narrative history, especially experimental narrative history, um, does a lot more of that heavy lifting to put the humanity back into history than I think some other areas of history do. And that's not a fault of those other histories. That's just a, a perk of narrative, if that makes sense. I don't know if you guys. Yeah, feel yeah,
0: that. absolutely. absolutely. Um, I, one question I did, it's kind of maybe moving the conversation on, on a little bit, but as historians, um, I was just from your own perspective of studying history so much and of of taking in and taking in perspectives I I guess one question I had was have you ever considered the the kind of impact studying history has had on you as a person and without getting too deep on this you know whether or not it's it's like changed your your compassion for people or allowed you to um, evolve past uh, maybe you know prejudice you had as a young person or things like that in a way that's helped your 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 mind evolved to, to a point where you, you're maybe a more compassionate person or more thoughtful person or more considerate of, of other people's, you know, experiences or things like that as a result of being so deep in, in history and considering the perspectives of people that you might not deal with in modern life or in your, your day-to-day dealings.
1: Um, Ian, do you want to take that question first?
2: I I, I think it's, I mean, I'm not sure if being a historian actually does that because some of the times, I, I mean, maybe you, you get to understand that people are far more complex than, than perhaps in any given conversation that you have or encounter that you've had with them. Um, maybe that they're multidimensional or multifaceted or whatever. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I, I mean, it's hard to talk about empathy and 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 see that as relating to history per se I mean I I've I've lived in four countries and and four continents so I tend you know for me that's more of a lived experience having to come to terms with people who are different than me even though everywhere I've lived is an English speaking country or where English is at least um the lingua franca um, like in Singapore, where it is the language, but it, everybody else has a second language. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm not sure that that flows out of history. And I, I imagine that history might make people a bit more attuned to that, because it's, it's getting people to understand other people in particular yeah. circumstances, and the issues that they're facing, and maybe that Encourages empathy. But I think mine would have come from just having to deal with different people at, at a young age. I, and I mean, I look back to when I was a kid and living in England, and I sometimes find myself not very happy about the way I was treated as an Australian, which is, you know, some white kid in, the, in a class with a bunch of English kids. And yeah, they didn't treat me very nice. And then I remember the West Indian kid in my school. And I imagine, wow, that poor kid. Um, so for me, any empathy comes from, I think, from my own kind of lived experience. And then, you know, recognizing that, well, it might have been bad for me, but think about yeah, some of those other kids around me. So yeah, I mean... Maybe history does
3: that.
1: I think I think I would agree with you that it's not. It's definitely not solely history that is doing that. A lot of it is again experiential. Um, I I think I would say though that the more I learn about, especially the, like latter half of the twentieth century American history, I. Have more context for why we are where we are now and um, the views that people do have over certain things. So I think the understanding of where we've come from, where those ideas have come from, how they've developed kind of politically and socially and culturally has explained a lot more. Um, and I'm I'm sure it has also changed my views on some things. I think actually one one thing that has definitely kind of impacted my very recent thoughts about American history and po- politics and culture is the episode that we did on impressions on the um, the evangelical right and the silent majority in the late 1970s and through the early Reagan years, that really opened my eyes and made me think about history and politics in a very new way. Um, I don't know if that necessarily breeds compassion or empathy, but I think understanding is on the path to empathy and, and compassion. Um, so that's that's what I would say for history, I think. And with my my first master's thesis on um, endometriosis and diseases that I currently have, reading about them and the mental escapism that people who were experiencing the same diseases had in the ancient Mediterranean world and coming up with mythologies about them, that definitely made me empathize with Um, All of the people who have suffered from endometriosis and other like uterus related reproductive diseases throughout all of history, because there's been so little research into what those medical, what those ailments are. Um, And that gave me a new dimension of empathy just for people living in the past with chronic illnesses or any diseases really um, that they had to suffer much more than people now who are currently suffering with those diseases do. and also to remember that the that those dimensions to history existed and again they were actual people and living and breathing and and having these day-to-day illnesses or issues or or things to deal with so i, I think that i think there's definitely a degree of compassion but i think it's more through understanding and learning more about them about people in the past and about what um, the world used to be like than it is just breeding compassion, if that makes sense.
3: I, I think for me personally, um, reading history and reading the history books uh, that's, um, that some people who don't share my opinion like or attached to, I think uh, has helped me to better under, understand them. Uh, I I think, uh, you know, reading the accounts of the French Revolution from from England, uh, reading about Edmund Burke and uh, Edmund Burke's backgrounds and um, reading about, like, Tory prime ministers in the 19th century, I think it helps me to understand uh, people who... I think I think often like arguments are as are, are, are set on a path where people will say certain things and you just wouldn't know why or how they could believe that, and you know you think like they are you but like a fallen version of yourself. You don't know where their arguments come from or like what mm-hmm. the basis of their arguments are. And I think uh, by learning about history, you you can do that. And I think I I I find that with. Certain characters, where um, certain things I'm attached to and certain, certain my, my preferences mean that that I might see them more favourably than other people do. I think um, uh, Lynn Johnson probably is uh, an example of, of that, um, where certain particular preferences um, people pick out certain things about him, and then certain people who want uh who who care about other things will pick out other things other things about uh about him and uh, i think having studied um the sort of the 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 politics and um ideas between uh the late 1880s and about 1920 uh, in america i think you often find um political groups where like people perceive them in a certain way. I think the progressives are really good. It's like um, often people on the right will think of them as like uh, an analog or like close to European fascists because of some certain things that they believed. And, and by, I think reading about that period and reading the books that uh, people on the right have read you 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 know why but it also helps you to clarify your own concerns uh as well so yeah I think the the empathy comes from an understanding whereas if you didn't read history you wouldn't have the, the the building blocks to be able to at least understand where exactly people are coming from even if you don't uh care that much about uh, their concerns, you, you at least understand where they're coming from.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, right, we're round about that remark now. Um, is, is there any other sort of divots we want to, to dive into with regards to history? So so far we've been talking about sort of inspirations around getting into history and maybe specific books or, or paths that have led us there. Vaughn, is, is there anything in particular that you were kind of wanting to to look into with this episode with, with, with Ian here?
1: Um, well, one, one other area that maybe we can end on if somebody else has something else first, but um, would be the, the historians that we're reading or excited about today and who's publishing right now that, that could be one of these inspirational sources for um, new students. To, to read and get really excited about. And I have a whole list of people whose research I'm really fascinated by, and I can't wait for their new publications. Um, and even the turns that some fields are taking are just really exciting to me uh, that we're, we're getting more into um, like, In film history, we're very much in an anti-hero kind of era and trying to understand villains and heroes from different perspectives. Um, That's been the major kind of trend for the last 10-ish years, I would say, in film history. Um, And in animation history and kind of kids' films, there's a big turn for gender and queer identities within those media outlets and that's really fascinating amy davis is a huge um historian in that area she studies primarily disney um and primarily disney animation through gender and queer lenses and her work is just absolutely fascinating to me um with kind of narrative histories we've had several people on this podcast who i would i would shout out for that um patrick lacroix do studying jfk and religion is absolutely fascinating um benjamin railton is writing a narrative history right now about uh two sandlots in san francisco and the chinese exclusion act how that kind of Uh, influenced that era. Um, We've had many fascinating guests on here. I would also shout out Chris Kempshaw, who is a First World War historian and is now publishing, um, I believe, next month on Star Wars and fascism and democracy within Star Wars. That's really exciting. I, I really love that. I get to talk to him very soon about that book for the Star Wars Podcast, um, yeah, there are a lot of really, really wonderful historians out there. Uh, Robin Field is; she just had a book out in twenty twenty called "Writing the Survivor: The Rape Novel in Late Twentieth Century American Fiction." Her work is absolutely brilliant and fascinating, and really, I guess a, a lot of these are are taking the the gender and queer lens. Um, which I don't necessarily do in my own work, but that's the predominant field that I'm really fascinated with at the moment Um, and all of the fields that are taking that turn within lit and culture and film and all of those kind of outlets. And then also Star Wars, because of course. So do you guys have anyone that you're really excited for or any fascinating kind of turns in fields that you want to shout out? Ian? Ian?
2: Yeah, I mean, increasingly, um, I tend to be reading books uh, in manuscripts to comment on them. And a lot of those are are in that kind of, um, I don't know if it's a field yet or whatever it is in in comics. So there's one that I I just started uh, doing a book review for so I can mention. It's uh, How Comics Travel uh, by Catherine Kelp. Uh, Stevens. And it's about translation and and then uh, not simply translation in language, but how they move when they move from, say, France to America. Um, and that looks fascinating to read. Um, I'm reading a really great PhD at the moment um, on uh, building a localized serial for children about, about comics um, that's um, yeah, um that I'm examining. Um and and that's one of the best things I've read in a long time. Um not mentioning names because it's still a little confidential, although I told you the title of it. Um and a couple of other books that I've read for presses lately or I'm about to read for presses that look look great. Um then um I think the 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 th- Things I've enjoyed reading lately, uh, a lot of Australian history um, that I've been reading about, um, uh, Stephen Gapps uh, writing on Aboriginal, on, on wars on the frontier in Australia and that um, the, the kind of wars that broke out between uh, the First Nation uh, in Australia and, and the white invaders, which is, is now formally recognised in Australia. So those have been, you know, somebody I used, I, I knew when I was at uni, to read some of those is great. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm kind of at the stage where I don't read as much history as I used to. And I, I tend to read uh, historical novels again because, um, hmm. <laughs> because I'm writing in a certain area. And um, so I've been reading uh, things like... I, Maybe it's not a historical novel, but uh, Viet Ninh's uh, The Sympathizer and uh, the sequel, The Committed. Um, I yeah went down the Hillary Mantel rabbit hole and read the trilogy of, of Wolf Hall, which you know I thought it was just great because it it um, it brought some of that era to life. And of course, it's so English and and. Um, and, you know, if you have that background, it's easier to read. And, of course, Americans love England so much, so often that um, it was very popular and appeared on Broadway. But uh, it's sort of narrative stuff that I'm looking at, often, yeah, historical novels. So I don't know that I'm a great one to ask about recent moves <laughs> in history. I mean, I'm an old guy, you know, I'm like... <laughs> My kind of great books are all about 30 years old and I remember them fondly and I just culled a lot of them off my shelf as I I moved out of my office. So um, new books, (laughs) those are the (laughs) things I read about, um, unfortunately, uh, in the New York Review of Books and and don't often get to. But I'm trying to think, yeah, mostly I, I tend to be looking at new Australian history these days, which isn't that great an interest more more broadly outside of australia and unless you're interested in wars on the frontier um yeah so and yeah historical fiction which i don't know what that says about historians as they age (laughs) Um, oh no
1: i love that you read historical fiction because it's 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 part of all of this, of, of how we consume history and how it can engage someone who isn't necessarily interested in history, but loves a good mystery book or a good romance that just happens to also be historical in nature. And I mean, I definitely love his analyzing and watching and reading um, about historical films. That's That feels like my guilty pleasure as a film historian is... How have people looked at the past and then said this is a narrative that I do want to tell but in a creative way. Um, I was having a great conversation yesterday with someone actually about um, practical PhDs and instead of just writing a traditional PhD thesis or dissertation, um, making a video game out of your research or making a a film out of your research like a, a historical fiction film and thinking about the process of doing that and what you include and what you omit and how you alter the historical story as we understand it, um, to fit whatever kind of plot you need. So I think that that is a very avant-garde way of consuming history. And I respect that a lot. <laughs> uh, if, if
3: anyone's looking for historical uh, fiction, the, the greatest and I'm going to say is the greatest, uh, historical fiction book ever written is, is the leopard by, uh, lampmpi Lampedusa, I'm a yep. big, big uh, booster for that <laughs> there's also an Italian a restaurant in, in Durham that that has like 20 copies of the book in in, in the window which is' good I think. <laughs> I, I'm,
2: unfortunately for me that was a book on my on my required reading when I was a school student the year I dropped out so
3: oh, you had good I, teachers.
2: yeah <laughs> I I I, I yeah it's like a guilty um that that uh, game in david lodge's small world um uh, what's it called um not embarrassment but where you you win the game by admitting to not having read you know a classic uh-huh. or a movie dick or something that everybody else has read
3: what's it i think probably for that like historical fiction or like writing good uh p- partly social history book I think like the start of, like you now you're talking about the style of the novel but the, the central part of the novel is you know you've got um the the uh, Sicilian family who has to basically give up their status while you know during the Italian Risorgimento and, and all this by by doing it by it, by basically joining with a an emerging bourgeois family that's very rich and sustaining their world you know you know and the, you're not knowing the paintings but the the and the artifacts and the and the history and the status that they have by joining the emerging bourgeois and you, so you see all this the clash in culture but also an attempt to kind of sustain this lived experience through this new new thing and i think it, i mean it's it's done probably very well because it it is by someone who's a, a a writer at a certain, uh, level, but I, you know, like I, you know, not doing, uh, not being a historian myself, um, and, but, you know, doing some academic history, I actually do tend to read these kinds of like things that could get made into, uh, movies. Uh, there's a, there's a book, I'm not quite sure of the title on the, the Diamond Necklace Affair, Marie Antoinette's um, Diamond Necklace Affair, which I found, is like, again, is a really, really interesting, really well-written book. Again, it's, it's something that actually happened, and it ties into a much larger story, but it is a, is a kind of, you know, interesting uh, social story. And then for me, you know, I, I focus on uh, pop politics and business uh, books. Uh, Shoshana Zubov's book on the history of... Uh, the algorithm and the, you know, the surveillance, um, economy, not even surveillance state before it becomes a state is really a surveillance economy. Uh, is it, you know, um, surveillance capitalism is a, is a fantastic book. And, um, uh, Kim Phillips fine wrote a book on called fear city A history of the, uh, New York austerity crisis, uh, which, you know, a lot of historians have been focused, I think, um, or in the 1970s probably because a lot of them were either you know born in the 70s or they see the 70s as a kind of beginning of um the politics that we have today and it's a really uh, great book on on new york and uh, its fiscal crisis it's kind of fed into some of the stuff we've done in in terms of the podcast in terms of we had a new york episode but also into my true crime podcast because we recently had a an episode on 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 son of sam as well in that in that period so yeah those are the kinds of things i've been
2: yeah I, i've been reading gotham an old
3: book by uh, um
2: mike wallace in uh, oh actual... yeah that's
3: a big that's a long history book isn't it yeah, yeah.
2: It's, there's two volumes there's a second volume um there's the first volume co-authored in the second volume but the bit that I love in that is the description of the uh, opening of the Erie Canal and the celebration in New York for that which yeah I I grabbed a whole bit out of that for a lecture because it just yeah they use the sources so well they captured this this you know moment in New York City of, of you know when New York is just at the cusp of becoming the premier financial city in New York which the Erie Canal creates and all the complexity of the financing of the canal, the, yeah, which because spending time in Rochester, New York, where the canal runs through, oh, there's a wonderful book about it called the shopkeepers millennium. So yeah. When you mentioned New York, I was like, oh yeah, but Gotham's <laughs> like that book's 30 years old, but it's still. No, a- that's like, a, that's a book I, I
3: definitely, book. definitely need to read. Oh. Yeah. I have a friend who went to the university of uh, Staten Island. He was like he, he continuously posts excerpts from from that book. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> without trying to draw this this out too much, and without trying to ask questions that are a little bit off topic, um, the one question that I I did have just since we're we're talking about history and we're talking about public history and um how people are engaging with history, the, the one question I have for you guys is with education the way it is right now and with their kind of continued attacks on the education system and with teaching of history and and with the fact academia can be seen as gatekeeping in journals and and that kind of stuff, what role do you think or how do you think the teaching of public history will continue to evolve because of things like podcasts and because we now have the ability for any historian or anyone who's interested in history to simply start a podcast and start broadcasting and we have people like Vaughn who, who's so knowledgeable and and, and has access to, to to libraries that maybe ordinary people don't have and is able to educate people in a way which is outside of um mainstream broadcasting and is able to um, help people understand um concepts that maybe they would otherwise not have access to and in a way that wasn't available you know 40 years ago. Do you think his do you think there's there's something there with how history is going to, or the teaching of history is going to evolve because of things like broadcasting these new types of media um, that we didn't have access to before? And how do you think about that coming at a time where just the teaching of history itself seems to be more and more um, challenged?
2: Um, I, I think that so many of us have gone uh, online to teach during the pandemic, so... Mm-hmm. Um, my co-teacher and I um, had a course on uh, history and popular culture, which is just a reworked version of another course. But <laughs> we we taught it online, and we had to, you know, rethink what we were doing a lot. And one of the things we ended up doing was creating a um, like an old style movie serial where we created this ridiculous plot around um, the technology we used to teach it and it being under threat from some nefarious element and we were tasked to you know to say that and we went on missions and you know we created this whole little top and tailing of our videos that we were posting in place of lectures um it worked out as my co-lecturer re-edited it, it as one thing it was 28 minutes long um <laughs> So there's that kind of just you know playing around and, and with teaching techniques um, and learning new technologies, which people have had to do during during the pandemic. That I think uh, will open up some of the ways people are approaching it. And of course, just generally, you know, history has opened up so much. We we have a course in Singapore, which people often you know see in a particular way that it might surprise them. We have a course on pirates. Um, Taught out mm. of the history department. That's cool. Um, which, yeah, my my colleague Donna Brunero has taught it for something like ten years now, and it's enormously popular. And there's a joint lecture. Uh, with somebody from the physics department who works on the physics of oceans, and and they they do this part where she talks to the physics students about the sea and pirates, and he talks to the history st- students who are in a history general education course for the broad university about the way the sea works. So you know there there are these sort of things starting to happen where people are exploring ways of of you know of getting the importance of understanding the humanities, the human question into things like, well, when humans are interacting with the sea, how do they do it? What does it mean? Why were pirates uh, located in certain places beyond they were good places to loot? What, you know, what were the kind of, you know, the way that the ocean worked that let them use a base in a certain way and, and things like that. So I think, you know, this is one of the opportunities with the new technologies that people have learned. Um, they're probably teaching slightly differently. And, they, and of course, all of that can be taken out and beyond. The problem is so much of it, uh, You know, I taught a MOOC course on superhero entertainments as part of my university's attempts to get into this area uh, with uh, one of the providers of those and it was a thoroughly unhappy experience for me. It was great to prepare all the material, particularly the parts we, you know, about two-thirds of it was professionally produced with a teleprompter and I'd written a script and blah, 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 but it was, you know, talking in a voice. I got a lot of feedback in some ways from people, but I didn't do any actual um, engagement with, with students. We, we never sort of spent the time developing their knowledge out of what they were getting from a lecture is all up to them, which it always is, but up to students to engage with what they're studying. But it's useful to have that capacity to spend time with them and sort of help them move in the direction they want to go with with material and and, and guidance. So I think some of the problems with this new technology um, might be um, that universities, which are so strapped for cash, are going to look at ways of trying to monetize it, and then of course that's just going to kill it um, mm. And, and, mm. and turn it into something uh, other than it is. And that's, of course, that's already happening. Um, and and you know, to a certain extent. It's a podcast, which this one seems to be like, which is a combination of professional histo- you know, historians in training or whatever you want to call it, um, with a range of people who are engaged with history, not just people who are sitting in archives all day long and producing a PhD or producing a book, uh, but with folks who have that general interest in history and have engaged with it. I think that sort of stuff um, is always going to work best
3: um, yeah, I think that's that's poor. Just as a as a former student, I remember that we had a historian of uh, alcohol at Leicester who was doing uh, a a course on gangsters in the nineteen twenties, which you know I, I I thought was super interesting. It's one of my greatest regrets that I fell asleep when people were trying to book for the class and ended up doing Kafka instead. But but it is like I think yeah that, that kind of stuff because you know like you'll be in archives and do all, all different kinds of things but that kind of class and uh, in as, and especially in a digital form can be a way of really getting people engaged and uh, and you know getting people really interested in it in in history beyond you know the sort of important work that also has to has to get done as well.
2: I'm so old school, we used to have to register for classes manually. And so we. I remember one year a whole group of us met, had a champagne breakfast and then turned, we're all the first 30 people into, or 20 people into a class or something of, that was limited to 20 people because we'd organized a meet beforehand and turned it into a social occasion. But that was a long time <laughs> ago.
0: Vaughn, I was going to say, you never have any thoughts about education. So I'm sure this question won't interest you.
1: Yeah, no, I don't at all. I don't think about education one day. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I think the most important thing is for me when I'm teaching, I really want my students to lead the class um, and go in whatever area they want to talk about any given day. Uh, as long as it's still kind of pertaining to the subject that we are supposed to talk about. So like one of the best days I've ever had teaching and maybe one of my favorite days of my life so far was a seminar on public history. And in the first five minutes, one of my students brought up the Marquis de Sade. And I was like, what? why, (laughs) why are we talking about the Marquis de Sade and many of the other students in the room didn't know who he was. So they all started Googling. And then I was like, okay, please stop searching Marquis de Sade guys. And I happened to know a lot about the Marquis de Sade because I took a master's course on the history of pornography. So I was trying to like tamper this down, but they kept coming up with fun facts about the Marquis de Sade. Um, So we restructured like on a dime the whole conversation about public history onto Desaad. And it was a really fun, engaging discussion and really sparked a lot of debate in the classroom. And I I think that kind of flexibility is something that I personally didn't have a lot in undergrad, in in history or even in my first master's really. So I think it it like anything that can spark interest in history is normally something that students feel their their teacher shouldn't be talking about, (laughs) Um, or that just takes history from a perspective you wouldn't normally, or like that that doesn't seem like the textbook definition of history. Like for me, when I when I read Ian's book. On comic strips and consumer culture, it was a completely left field view of what I thought history could be. So I think anything that can spark that, whether it's a class on history of pornography or um, just someone bringing up Dassad in a freshman year, first year history class, um, or if it's a podcast talking about, I don't, I don't know. History of WWE. Anything that can get an audience interested in history, and not even necessarily about the content, but about the wider questions you can ask, is a net positive. And I think podcasts and the internet and Twitter even are really great ways to be able to to engage on that level and say it's not necessarily about the content. It's not about the facts and the dates, but history as a discipline is about asking these like really large philosophical questions using the history and the events and the people that we do know as our kind of through way to an answer to those very large questions. And sometimes we don't even answer them, but that's, that's the best part to me is the asking the questions and trying to think things through.
3: And I think This I, is a very
1: I, rambling answer. I, but... I
3: think a, a last question I, I do want to ask is that history And probably the broader humanities right now is seen as uh less 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 and less appealing to young people um probably for for more for economic reasons than than anything else and 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 what books or forms of uh media do you think would be important for uh stopping that um that trend uh right now oh that's a big
2: question I don't, I don't think there's an easy answer there. I think, I, I don't think any particular thing's gonna stop it. I, I think it's a, a defense of humanity. I think, I think unfortunately humanity scholars have, have not defended what they do very well. And partially that's because it's hard to defend, not because it's irrelevant or anything, but because it doesn't have that immediate market value that under in a neoliberal capitalist, increasingly global economy, people want to hang everything onto that and to remind people that the humanities are about understanding the human and all our foibles and that has many important ramifications for societies everywhere just seems so wishy-washy um, in, in, at a time when people are focused on um, you know, on inflation, I mean, increasingly these days on inflation, on global warming, on wars here and there, that, you know, and how to survive, that they, they, they've forgotten that survival takes an understanding of where you came from, uh, the mm-hmm. ways that societies were shaped and, and what they're meant to be doing, what, what we've, you know, understood ourselves as trying to achieve as societies. And there's been a certain amount of turning one's back on that, so perhaps you know it's it's in areas like environmental history, um, in in you know taking the moment to talk to people about well what is the nature of war, what's the history of war been, what's the history of, of Russia and the Soviet Union, uh, what's the history of inflation and stagflation, something we might be finding again, so it's it's trying to insert stories back into in into um, particular moments uh, and, and try to explain to people that if you understand how we got to here a little better, you might see how we can, you know, get out of here uh, in some way, shape or form. And neoliberalism and, and um, certain, you know, economic rationalism isn't going to help you understand that. It's, it's going to help you understand maybe how to make money out of it, but it's not going to save society or, or ourselves um, in, in in doing so. So I, I think it's about projecting um, the importance of humanities more as, as a means of understanding uh, ourselves and the empathy for people around us and the need to have that uh, that's important.
1: I definitely agree. Um, the- reason i study history is to understand the past so that we can understand the present and build a better future is the answer the shorthand answer that i give a lot of the time um and i see history as activism um and i know that a lot of people don't and a lot of historians don't use their work as activism but i genuinely try to Um, especially with public history, that we're not just talking about um, certain things that we find interesting, but we're talking about how we got here and, and what ramifications that has for the present and the future. Um, so I, I think one of my biggest gripes with academic history is that we don't We don't explain it well enough to non-academic historians and non-specialists what we do. I think there's a prevailing view of history, especially in the U.S. and especially in public schools, like where I came from in the States, um, that history is about facts and knowing dates, and this is exactly what happened, and there is a fundamental truth to history. And I think we really need to do a better job of explaining that history is about an interpretation of facts and there are different views and different angles that you can take things from and a lot of history in massive air quotes has already been written and what we do now as modern historians is look at it from different angles with different theoretical lenses and say like we know that these comics were written in the 40s and 50s but what, what did they actually say about women in these comics? And how would that have impacted wider gender roles or wider expectations about what women do in the workplace or at home? And that's, that's, I think, something that we could do better at explaining to the general population who are not specialists, who think of history as a singular definition of this is just what happened in the past. Um so, yeah. Let me
2: give an example I just thought of. Um some years ago, Rihanna wore an egg yolk gown to the Met ball. Um, I don't know if you any of you have seen it. It's a huge gown with a big trail and it's yeah, it was called the egg yolk gown. And one of my um somebody I taught in their MA program, works as a curator in a museum here, the Museum of Asian Civilization. And she saw that gown and she saw in that some uh, elements of Chinese design around uh, things like chong She got in contact on a whim with the, I think, Italian creator of it. Um, I can't quite remember who the creator was. So, but, you know, very huge, um, you know, if Rihanna's wearing a gown. And she was right. The curator had, uh, the woman who designed the gown had borrowed from, had seen something in Singapore um, that my, you know, my my friend Jackie uh, had been the museum curator displaying that gown. And the woman had visited that museum and seen that gown and taken inspiration from it. And through that connection, she was able to get Rihanna's big egg yolk gown into an exhibition explaining the origins of that in some oh, of wow. these local, actually, Puranakan, which is um, Chinese in, in the Malay world um, and, and others as well in the Malay world, and these influences. And that's the kind of role that public history can play. Now, how that impacts us on us in a bigger way, of course, is, is, is another issue, but it's engaging with people around things like, well, fashion, and, and explaining this too has historical roots and influences and are drawn from it. And, and her sharp eye and and willingness to contact the creator uh, of, of the egg yolk gown led to this wonderful museum exhibition here of, of this kind of cultural exchange. Um, so when we're talking about empathy, um, this is perhaps one of the ways um, that, that we're looking at it, cultural exchanges across history and, yeah. you know, the way things like tea ceremonies come out of China into, you know, and then become a, an English sort of thing in a way uh, and so on and so on. So maybe historians can focus a little bit more um, on trying to tell narratives like that around these, around objects of everyday use, objects that are, you um, uh, become uh, the focus of, of public discourse for a while and explain the roots of those and the importance of those. Because so many of these things, I mean, as, as increasingly as we're more and more aware, you know, globalization you know, in different forms stretches way back. We've long had a, 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 a culture of, of international trade, um, a lot
1: less than now, of course, but contact and, and so on. Right. Um. Is that
0: us probably done for this episode then? Unless there's anything else anyone would like to, to add around around the broad subject of history. Um, Vaughan, any any final thoughts from yourself, or are you happy to close up?
1: Um. I mean, I could talk about this for for days on end. Um.
0: <laughs> we are aware. Yes.
1: yes yeah. <laughs> um. But I I think we can. I will. I will allow it to end there if you guys are wanting to um thank you so much ian this this was really fascinating and really wonderful to be able to talk to you
2: it's nice to just chit chat about stuff (laughs) without feeling that i've got to teach somebody something or or, (laughs) or be too worried about prattling on so thank you it was it was fun
0: it's a real pleasure um yes so thanks Ian really really appreciate your time today um from from Ian from Toby from Vaughn and myself Simon thank you very much for listening and we'll have another episode for you in the near future goodbye bye
2: bye thank you